In lecture seven, we are going to talk about three specific provisions of the charter. Section 2B, that protects freedom of expression. Section 7, which guarantees life, liberty, and security of the person, and that those will not be taken away except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And Section 15, which guarantees equality. But before we get into those specific sections, I want to first talk about the approach to interpretation of the Charter generally. What we need to remember is that the Charter is given a purposive interpretation. Of course, it's not a surprise that the Charter wouldn't be given an originalist interpretation. The idea is not to try to divine what the words were originally, specifically written to mean, but rather you want to think of the purpose for protecting the rights and ensure that the interpretation that is given to a charter right is one that will continue to accomplish that purpose. This is set out in the seminal case Hunter and Southam, 1984 Supreme Court of Canada case, very early charter case. The court said, the proper approach to the interpretation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is a purposive one. And that was a case under, again, the Combines Investigation Act, that legislation dealing with anti-competitive behavior that we discussed when talking about GM and city national leasing. So in considering the search power under that act, the Supreme Court of Canada said, before it is possible to assess the reasonableness of a statute authorizing a search, it is first necessary to specify the purpose underlying Section 8, in other words, to delineate the nature of the interests it is meant to protect. Section 8, the right to be free from unreasonable search or seizure. And the court says you need to delineate the interests that Section 8 is intended to protect. The court came up with privacy as the underlying interest that the freedom from unreasonable search and seizure protects. We're not studying Section 8 in any detail in this course, but this idea that the project is to figure out the underlying interests that are protected is the purposive approach to interpretation. So when we're looking at section two, when we're looking at section seven, or when we're looking at section 15, we always have to bear in mind, is this being interpreted in a way that's going to accomplish the purposes for which a constitutional guarantee was given? So the first podcast of Lecture 7 is about Section 2B of the Charter. That provision reads, everyone has the following fundamental freedoms, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication. So when we interpret that provision, we have to bear in mind a guiding principle is that we must have the purpose for which this protection was constitutionalized in sight. And of course, the idea of freedom of expression, free speech, has a long history both in law and in philosophy. You can go back to John Milton and then famously John Stuart Mill for robust discussions of freedom of expression. 
It's been protected in the United States Constitution since their passage of the Bill of Rights. And the Supreme Court of Canada in Keegstra, a case about hate speech and anti-hate speech legislation, decided that, or set out that, Section 2B promotes several core values. The first is that freedom of expression, thought, belief, and opinion, including freedom of the press, furthers participation in democratic and social decision-making. If we're going to have a democracy, we have to be able to express our opinions, to express our ideas, and to do so freely. Now, this is a key goal, a necessary condition to the democratic principles that Canada at least aspires to and hopefully comes closer to achieving. But if we were to tie freedom of expression, thought, opinion, and belief simply to the goal of participation in the democratic process, it would be a relatively restricted right. It would only matter to things that engage the political discussion on some level. And that is not the full extent of any robust conception of what freedom of expression is or does. So the Supreme Court of Canada also noted that freedom of expression allows for the search for truth within the idea of a marketplace of ideas. This is the John Stuart Mill idea, that when you let people discuss ideas freely, there's a hope that there will be a cream rising to the top and the, the truth will win out through the open discussion of ideas. Now, I am personally horrified at what I'm seeing sometimes with respect to how that is playing out uh, recently, but there's a long historical pedigree for the idea that this, this ought to work, that, that truth ought to triumph in a marketplace of ideas. And so that notion is still at the core of freedom of expression, one of the core values for which freedom of expression is protected in Canada. But there's more to it than just that. It, it doesn't necessarily end just at participation in democracy and searching for truth. Rather, expression can have an intrinsic value in and of itself. And so the court recognized that self-realization can be an important component of expression. Song and dance and art, they may not strictly be getting at an objective truth. Some people might not even believe in objective truth, but their ability to express themselves, to engage in self-realization, that is still protected under Section 2B. So when we think of the Keegstra case, which you didn't have in your readings, and we're going to touch on hate speech very shortly in the Whatcott case, but when we think of the Keegstra case, we want to think of these three core values protected by Section 2B, participation in democratic and social decision-making, okay, that narrow, direct engagement in democracy, absolutely vital, but not the end of the matter. The search for truth within the marketplace of ideas doesn't need to be truth about politics, but the truth about anything, philosophy, science, the marketplace of ideas means, hopefully, that if you let freedom of expression you let people express themselves freely, the truth will win out. But finally, there's an intrinsic value to expression in and of itself. And that is also protected. Those are the three core values that Section 2B protects. And those are the core values that must stay in mind to have a purposive approach to interpretation of that charter provision. So what's the framework? How do we go about 
answering a section to be case. Well, we're back to a familiar case, the case of Irwin Toy. And so again, you may remember from our discussion about section one of the charter, that this case involved a toy company challenging the constitutionality of a Quebec law banning advertising directed at children. Now, the basis for this challenge was that it violated section 2B of the charter, freedom of expression, to restrain the toy company's ability to advertise aimed at its target market, supposedly. So the court said, okay, well, what is the test to establish a breach of section 2B of the charter? And the court decided it's a two-step process. Step one, you must determine if the activity conveys or attempts to convey meaning in a non-violent way. So this is the scope of what is protected under Section 2B. In order to accomplish that broad purpose of recognizing those core values, the scope of what is protected is activity that conveys or attempts to convey meaning in a non-violent way. The only expression that is going to be limited at Step 1 is something that's claimed to be expression but is devoid of meaning, and meaning has been interpreted very broadly. So that's going to be extremely rare. Or violent expression. So if your form of expression is violence, that will be outside the scope of 2B. Importantly, though, the violence is true violence. We're not talking about damage to property or something like that as taking you outside of 2B. So so long as your expressive activity conveys or attempts to convey meaning and is not violent, you've gotten through step one. Does advertising aimed at children fall within the scope of freedom of expression so defined? Yes, certainly. It aims to convey meaning in a nonviolent way. And step two asks, was the purpose or the effect of the government action to restrict freedom of expression? Purpose or effect of government action to restrict freedom of expression? Of course, it has to be government action because only the government is subject to the charter. But it need not be the purpose and the effect, but you simply need the purpose or the effect. However, the test has a bit of a nuance in that when you are looking at the effect, you have to tie back in those core underlying values. So I'll get to that in a second. So just remember, it gets a little bit confusing at the effect stage, but let's go through purpose first. So remember, if you have step one, you have this, does an activity convey or attempt to convey meaning in a nonviolent way? Step two, was the purpose or the effect of the government action to restrict freedom of expression? Well, let's, what kind of legislation would not have its purpose be to restrict freedom of expression? And what the courts have found is controlling the time, place, and manner of activity, regardless of content, does not restrict the freedom of expression. So this is the example of if you have a law that says you cannot have live music in the town square after 11 p.m. This is simply regulating the time and place of conduct. It's not regulating anything about the content. So restrictions purely on when, where, and how somebody can engage in 
expressive activity, those will not be found to violate section 2b. So what am I talking about here? Let's break it down a bit further. Content neutral time, place, and manner restrictions. That is a law that doesn't care about what it is that you're trying to convey. I don't care if you're coming to support the liberals or the conservatives, this applies equally to everybody. It's content neutral. It simply is regulating where you can be expressive, when you can be expressive, and in what manner you can be expressive. And there's a lot of these. Noise ordinances. You can't go blast a megaphone walking down the street at 2 o'clock in the morning to get your message across. I don't care what your message is. That would be a violation of a noise ordinance. Manner. You can't graffiti on the wall, no matter what your message is. That's a manner restriction. Place. You can't put up a billboard in a national park. It's a place that's inconsistent with that type of an expressive activity. If you have a truly content neutral, I don't care what your message is. I don't care who you're supporting. I don't care what your point of view is. This would apply to everybody. Truly content neutral. And you're only caring about where, when, and how. Where, when, or how. This will be found not to have a purpose being to restrict freedom of expression. Now, the courts are clever, though, and they will look carefully at these types of laws because they will like to see, well, maybe your graffiti law is now trying to clamp down on a particular movement in your city, and you've greatly increased the penalties for graffiti in response to people who are engaging in anti-government messages. That wouldn't truly be necessarily a content-neutral restriction. That would be an attempt to get at content by cracking down on one manner of expression in order to restrict a certain class of people who might engage in that manner of expression to get their ideas across. This is the same idea of colorability that we see in the Division of Powers jurisprudence. We have to beware of the legislature passing what they are saying is content-neutral, time, place, and manner, but is in fact aimed at limiting one type of expression. The courts are going to be careful for that. But if you can show, look, this is truly content-neutral, it's time, place, and manner. I, I don't care what you're saying, I just can't have you saying it at that place or at that time or in that way. Then you may succeed at step one and say, okay, the purpose is not to restrict expression. But of course, it's not purpose and effect, it's purpose or effect. So the court will say, even if you didn't intend to restrict freedom of expression, was the effect of what you did to restrict freedom of expression? And here the claimant has to say, no, that law had the effect of preventing me from expressing myself in one of the ways that 2B is intended to protect. So you might say, it had the effect of preventing me from participating in democracy. It had the effect of preventing me from engaging in truth-seeking. It had the effect of preventing me from engaging in self-realization, self-actualization, self-fulfillment, human flourishing. Now here, though, the court's going to look not just at, did you not have the ability to do it exactly as you wanted to do it? But they'll look at, did you have other ways to, to get your 
message across? Does this actually interfere with your ability to meaningfully engage in expression? And you might imagine, for example, a ban on lawn signs, beautification of our neighborhoods. We don't want to have lawn signs up in the city. Content neutral, and it's a manner restriction. Okay, an election comes along. Somebody wants to plop a lawn sign up. You could imagine how the court might say, well, that's content neutral. That's a content neutral law, but it's having the effect of limiting someone's ability to engage in political speech, really at the core of Section 2B. Now imagine that person was a paraplegic and couldn't easily leave their house, or they had um, you know, some other mechanism that would make it very difficult for them to engage in speech, political speech, other than by putting a message out for people to see. Well, the court might say, look, you had your purpose content neutral manner restriction, but the effect was to limit someone's ability to engage in freedom of expression in, a, in relation to a core goal. So that's sort of what we're getting at with this effect question. Even if your purpose was content neutral time, place, and manner, did you nevertheless have the effect of limiting someone's ability to actually participate in democracy, to engage in truth-seeking, or to engage in individual self-fulfillment, human flourishing, self-actualization, all that, the third requirement. Now, if you think it sounds like under this test, a lot of stuff is going to be caught under Section 2B as being protected expression, you are right. All you have to do is convey meaning or even just try to convey meaning in a nonviolent way. And then if you have government activity that restricts your ability to do so, unless it has a completely neutral purpose, a completely neutral, content neutral, time, place, and manner only, and it doesn't have the effect of actually preventing you from engaging in democracy, seeking truth, or seeking self-fulfillment, well, then it's going to be protected. It's, it's very broad what is covered by Section 2B. That's not the end of the story, though, right? You have to go into Section 1. Is this justified? And when you look at the Section 2B cases, very often that there is an infringement on freedom of expression is even conceded by the government. They say, yeah, no, we recognize that this law will restrict your ability to convey meaning in a nonviolent way. And certainly that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to restrict meaning for some valid purpose. But let me tell you what that valid purpose is. And so in Irwin Toy, there's little question that the effect of an advertising ban is to limit the ability of the company to convey meaning in a nonviolent way. But is it justified under Section 1? That's where a lot of the heavy lifting is done. Now, Irwin Toy was an early case, and so it had a lot of discussion and questions of whether advertising is a type of speech that's protected under Section 2B. You know, it's an early case is going to deal with these issues in a fundamental way. Nowadays, on a case like Irwin Toy, you would probably just jump right into a Section 2B analysis. Oh, yes, of course, this is a ban on advertising. It, uh, it affects speech. Let's see if it's justified. You wouldn't have to go through much rigmarole at the first infringement stage. And when we're getting into the Section 1 analysis, we want to remember there's a burden shift. It's the person alleging a charter violations obligation to show that the state conduct impairs their ability to convey meaning in a nonviolent way, 
and that the purpose or effect of the government action is to restrict expression. But if you can show that, now it's the government's job to show that such a violation is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, that it's a reasonable limit prescribed by law demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, that is, that it's savable under Section 1. So it's a burden shift, government's job now. And the government will lead evidence. And they're not even limited to leading evidence that was in existence at the time the law was passed. So the Section 1 analysis is not an attempt to see if the law had a solid evidentiary basis and a sound reason when it was passed. The idea is to see, look, knowing what we know now and not changing the purpose, not bringing in some whole new purpose that was unknown when the law was passed, but knowing what we know now about the issues and knowing what the government's purpose was when it passed the law, is that purpose demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society? Is that purpose one that can justify infringing a charter protected right? So you can rely on new evidence. The government will lead substantial evidence under Section 1. You can have huge records, experts after expert, on a Section 1 issue. And that evidence doesn't have to exist when the law was passed to defend it. But you can't come up with a brand new purpose for a law, a purpose that didn't exist at the time the law was passed. So getting into Section 1, in this case, the court says, is there a pressing and substantial objective? Step 1 of Oaks. And they say, yes. Protecting children from commercial manipulation is pressing and substantial. And the government relied on social studies, it's a social science that said, most children under age 13 are not as equipped to evaluate advertising as adults. And indeed, many children can't tell when the program ends and the commercials begin. And they've got very little ability to discern when they're being exaggerated to. I certainly find that with my, my eight-year-old son. He's a very bright kid, but he believes ads pretty easily. So is there a pressing and substantial objective the court says, yes, protecting children from commercial manipulation is a pressing and substantial goal. Is there a rational connection? I mean, sure. The government measure is aimed at the problem. Now, was it minimally impairing? This is where, as I mentioned in the last lecture, the court introduced this idea of Irwin toy deference, the idea that we're not going to look for the absolute most minimally impairing thing when the government is weighing competing interests. We just want the government's choice to be reasonable. And here, there are some competing scientific claims. Some children under 13, which is where the law drew the line, were not vulnerable. And there's other policy options, you know, bans directed at children under six and self-regulation of the advertisers. There were other options. There were some competing scientific data. But that doesn't mean that the government's choice was not reasonable. They were weighing competing interests, competing ideas. They were balancing they were doing a fundamentally legislative purpose, and they came to a reasonable solution that was sufficient to satisfy the minimal impairment step of the Oaks framework. And finally, they said yes. The effect on advertisers is proportional to the goal of protecting children from commercial manipulation. The risk is that advertisers may lose money, but they just have to come up with new strategies. They can show ads to parents. Now, there was a dissent which said, no, this is not justified under Section 1. The dissent said, there's no evidence that children are harmed by the advertisements, and a complete ban goes too far, and 
that freedom of expression is really important. It's maybe the fundamental takeaway from the dissent, just saying we ought not to so quickly say it's justified. But indeed, this is the majority decision that this law, though it infringes freedom of expression, is saved under Section 1. And what you really want to take away from the Irwin Toy case is this framework. How do you find if there's been infringement of Section 2B? Well, you look. Is there an activity that conveys or attempts to convey meaning in a nonviolent way? Is there government action that has the purpose or effect of restricting freedom of expression? Recognizing that a purpose will not restrict freedom of expression if it's this content-neutral time, place, and manner type restriction. And the effect will not be to limit freedom of expression if it doesn't prevent somebody from engaging in these core values, participation in democratic and social decision-making, the search for truth and self-realization. you got to remember that usually it's quite easy to get into the Section 2B, and then the burden switches, and it becomes the government's job to lead evidence to defend the law as justified, as a reasonable limit demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, that is, to go through the Oaks analysis, to go through the Section 1 analysis. And you want to remember that that's usually where the heavy lifting is done in Section 2B, and we'll see that in the next case, Saskatchewan and Whatcott. Now, this is a amazing case in, in many ways. And one way that's so incredible about it is how long it took to come out. So it was heard in October of 2011, the judgment came out in February of 2013. That is something like 16 months after it was heard. Justice Deschamps heard the case in October of 2011. She announced her retirement in May 2012. In October 2012, her replacement was named, and the judgment came out after her replacement had already come to the court, decided a case. Like it's, it's, it's an amazing amount of time. So why was this such a hard case? Why did this take so long to decide? It's a, it's a tricky issue. It deals with hate speech. Hate speech is one of the real tests of freedom of expression. How do we deal with the absolute worst speech in our society, the truly vile? If you protect it, if you protect it robustly, well, then that's perhaps a good sign that you won't overshoot and you won't start unnecessarily limiting other expression. You know, if you set the line that you'll even let hate speech happen, well, then you've got a society that places an extremely high value on the abstract conception of freedom of expression. However, hate speech can be seriously harmful for the people who are subject to the hate speech, for the people who hear the hate speech, and for a society that tolerates hate speech. And so many societies have chosen to put limits, anti-hate speech legislation that says freedom of expression has its limits. And one place that chose to do so was Saskatchewan, which passed Section 14 of the Saskatchewan Human Rights Code, which states, no person shall publish or display any representation that exposes or tends to expose to hatred, ridicules, belittles, or otherwise affronts the dignity of any person or class of persons on the basis of a prohibited ground. And one of the prohibited grounds under the Saskatchewan Human Rights Code was sexual orientation. So 
Mr. Whatcott had a group called Christian Truth Activists, and they distributed flyers condemning homosexuality. The Human Rights Tribunal of Saskatchewan received complaints about four specific flyers. And those flyers are indeed reproduced as an appendix to the Supreme Court of Canada decision. And the Saskatchewan Human Rights Tribunal held that the flyers contravened Section 14 of the Human Rights Code as they exposed persons to hatred and ridicule on the basis of sexual orientation. So the tribunal issues an order prohibiting Mr. Whatcott and the Christian Truth activists from distributing the flyers or any similar materials, and they order Mr. Whatcott to pay $25,000 to one complainant and $5,000 to each of three other complainants. So Mr. Whatcott appeals and challenges the constitutionality of Section 14 of the Saskatchewan Human Rights Code. Now, as I alluded to earlier, usually getting through the Irwin toy test to show that there's a limitation on expression is relatively easy in the difficult freedom of expression cases. It's not often a question of whether there's in fact something that in purpose or effect prohibits somebody from conveying or attempting to convey meaning in a nonviolent way. Usually the question is, can that limit be justified under section one? And indeed at paragraph 62, the court says, look, this is easy to find that the Irwin toy test is met such that we need a justification from the government. The activity has expressive content and the purpose of the impugned provisions is to limit expression. The question is whether they can be saved under section one. And then the first issue the court has to address was how are we going to interpret this legislation? Because of course, section 14 has as one of its elements, exposing to hatred. What is the definition of hatred for the purposes of hate speech legislation? And the court looked at the earlier decision of Canada and Taylor, which described hatred and contempt standard as prohibiting communication that involves extreme feelings and strong emotions of detestation, calumny, and vilification. And so the court said, well, is that definition of hatred too subjective? Is it too concerned with how somebody feels in relation to speech? Do you not need a more objective standard if we're going to ban certain speech? And the court says, no, this is not just about if somebody feels detested or vilified. Rather, the test is objective. The question is whether considered objectively by a reasonable person aware of the context and the circumstances, would the speech be understood as exposing or tending to expose members of the target group to hatred? But then the court says, well, what about the idea that hatred, which is an emotion, is inherently subjective? And the court says, no. In the definition from Taylor, the ideas of detestation and vilification go beyond mere disdain or dislike. Vilification is to abuse, denigrate, or delegitimize, to render lawless, dangerous, unworthy, or unacceptable in the eyes of the audience. And they say, in interpreting this framework of hatred, you look for certain hallmarks of hate that have been identified in the human rights jurisprudence since this Taylor case. Blaming members of a group for problems in society, saying they are carrying out secret conspiracies to destroy Western civilization, 
suggesting members are illegal or labeling people as liars, cheats. And so the, the court says, look, if we interpret this provision in this way, we can show that it's not just a purely subjective question as to whether there's been an exposure to hatred. Rather, we can look to objective indicia to set out a standard for which to measure alleged hate speech against. And so the court says, in getting into the Section 1 analysis, they say, first, let's look for a pressing and substantial objective. And they say, these objectives, the same objectives we looked at in an earlier hate speech case, Taylor, an objective of anti-hate speech legislation is to reduce psychological and social harm to members of a targeted group and to reduce the societal impact of hate speech. And that societal impact of hate speech involves the concern that if a group is considered inferior, subhuman, or lawless, it becomes easier to justify denying the group equal rights. And the court asked, well, are these objectives still pressing and substantial? And the court said, yes, sadly, yes. You know, since the Taylor case was decided, there's been genocides associated with hate speech and the emergence of the internet is a place where hate speech is rife. And I would say, since what caught the idea that you would be concerned that hate speech is no longer a pressing and substantial issue, you know, would be comical. It's clearly gotten worse in the last seven years. But then moving into the next part of the Irwin Toy analysis, they ask, is there a rational connection between section 14 and the pressing and substantial objective? And they say, well, for some of that definition. And you remember that the definition in section 14 had a number of different specific things that it banned. Exposing a group to hatred is rationally connected to the objective, but prohibiting expression that ridicules, belittles, or affronts the dignity of a protected group is not. That kind of expression may be offensive, it may be derogatory, it may be insensitive, but it doesn't rise to the level of exposing groups to hatred. So the court decides that some of Section 14 is not rationally connected to the objective and decides to use as a remedy to read down Section 14, to strike out from Section 14 the words ridicules, belittles, or otherwise affronts the dignity of. So they're going to interpret that provision, apply that provision, as if those words were not in the text. The idea is that removing these lower standards that could be caught by Section 14 won't transform the provision to something which was outside the intention of the legislature. You still have the protection against the strongest, exposing to hatred. So getting to the minimal impairment standard, the court says, look, when we've gotten rid of the ridicule, belittle, or otherwise affront the dignity of, and when we've properly interpreted exposes to hatred in a way that allows for an objective understanding of what is at issue, and it being detestation, vilification, enmity, extreme ill will, the court decides, yes, this is minimally impairing a freedom of expression. There may be less impairing alternatives. It may be possible to imagine a solution that impairs the right less, but there's no certainty as to what will be reasonably effective. They say there's a range of reasonable alternatives the legislature could have chosen and still satisfy the minimal impairment step. And in this case, this 
solution chosen by Saskatchewan falls within the range of reasonable. They look at the other alternatives. What? Let the marketplace of ideas work its magic. Do nothing. And the court says, look, that is within the range of reasonable. But the Saskatchewan legislature's decision to regulate was also reasonable. And the court says, look, it's not obvious that rational discussion overcomes falsehood necessarily in an unregulated marketplace. They say, it can't put all our trust necessarily in the marketplace of ideas, or at least it's not unreasonable to not want to put all your trust in the marketplace of ideas. And furthermore, hate speech is a unique type of speech that is uniquely ill-suited to resolution within a marketplace of ideas because a significant component of it is discouraging participation of targeted individuals in the marketplace of ideas. You're vilified, demeaned, detested. Your opinions are worthless. These are the ideas that are behind hate speech. And the court says, we can't simply say that you must just rely on the marketplace of ideas. Could that be a reasonable outcome within the range of reasonable? Sure. Is it the only thing that will be minimally impairing? The court says, no, we're going to defer to the legislature to some extent here. Another alternative was to use criminal law to prohibit just the most serious kind of hate speech, threatening, advocating, or justifying violence. And the court says, well, human rights legislation can go beyond the minimums of the criminal code. They may offer more effective access to justice for disadvantaged victims. It may be easier for a victim to bring a human rights claim than it would be to go through the criminal process. And then the court says, well, what about the fact there's no defense of truth? This was an argument raised against the law. There's no defense of truth in this hate speech law. Does that mean it's not minimally impairing? And the court says, no, the search for truth, sure, it's at the core of freedom of expression, but vulnerable groups are no less worthy of protection because the publisher has used true statements and turned them into hateful messages. You can't try to expose a group to vilification and detestation by cherry picking and putting out of context and putting in the worst possible light a few true facts. If you're doing something with the goal of exposing somebody to vilification, detestation, and abuse, that conduct can be regulated. We don't need to engage into the question of whether the facts in a flyer may be true if the purpose of the flyer is to target a group, target a protected group, and put them in a position to be subject to ridicule. Now, I don't think that this would be an issue for Mr. Whatcott if you were to look at the flyers, but um, you could imagine perhaps a more clever bigot than Mr. Whatcott making a flyer that twisted true propositions into a hateful message. So then the court says, well, what about the final step, the general proportionality, benefiting the deleterious and salutary effects of the legislation, benefits versus the harmful effects to the protected interest? And the court says that the deleterious effects are relatively low. Deleterious effects to freedom of expression by banning hate speech are relatively low because hate speech itself undermines the values of freedom of expression. It undermines the search for truth by silencing targeted groups. It undermines self-fulfillment and social and democratic participation. And on the final balance, the benefits of suppressing hate speech outweigh the detrimental effects of restricting expression. 
And the court notes that this type of human rights legislation targeting hate speech has an advantage over just relying on the criminal law in that human rights legislation is conciliatory and remedial. It's aimed at fixing human rights abuses in a way teaching people about human rights issues. It provides guidance to people, even like Mr. Whatcott, which will allow them to express their views, you know, as detestful as many people may find them, but without falling into the narrow scope of hate speech. That is, you can say that you're anti-homosexuality. That is absolutely fine. You can say that you disagree strongly with homosexual practices, and you could say that you you personally dislike homosexual people. These are all fine. You know, it, not fine in a in my worldview, not fine according to me, but they fall within the scope of what is permitted to be said in Canada. It's just when you go and you try to gin up hatred against a protected group, that's when you're doing something categorically different than merely speaking your mind. And so even somebody who has a hateful, perhaps, worldview can benefit from the hate speech legislation, which will direct them away from the most vile and harmful methods of expression of that view. So in the final conclusion, the court says, you're free to speak out about minorities you do not like, but not in a way that objectively exposes them to hatred and its harmful effects. It's a tough case. It's a tough case to see where to draw the line on hate speech, how to define hate speech. Reasonable people can disagree with that decision and where the line was drawn without you know, being an advocate for hate speech or anything like that. There was wonderful lawyers on both sides arguing a difficult question. So next we are going to go back to the RJR McDonald case. If you remember, we touched on this earlier in the course. It was a case concerning a law prohibiting advertising and promotion of tobacco products and requiring a health warning on a tobacco packaging. So you have both another advertising ban and you also have the question of forced speech. Can you force somebody to include something on their packaging? And the court found that indeed, Section 2B of the Charter protects free expression, and the right to free expression includes the right to not say something. So the requirement to post warnings infringes charter rights as well. And not surprisingly, the prohibition on advertising infringes charter rights such that it requires a Section 1 analysis. And here you have Justice McLaughlin, Chief Justice McLaughlin, writing the majority reasons on Section 1. And she says, look, the Section 1 test needs to be applied flexibly. You need to have, to have regard to the factual and social context of each case. She emphasizes the focus of the court needs to stay on the actual evidence led by the government. She focuses on the demonstrable component of the Section 1 framework. She says, sometimes it's difficult to apply this Irwin Toy deference idea of when are you balancing competing interests when is it the state versus one person? But she says, look, in this case, some deference is owed. And a law ought not to be struck down merely because the court can conceive of some possible alternative. But that being said, deference cannot be taken to the point of relieving the government of the duty to demonstrate 
that limits are reasonable and justified. And we're going to look at the evidence that's actually led in support of a Section 1 analysis. She also, importantly, focuses on the importance of not overstating the purpose of a law and the need to focus on the specific provisions that are being challenged. If you look at the act as a whole, you may overstate the legislature's purpose in doing something that's infringed the Constitution, make it seem more important than it is. So she says the objective here is for the advertising ban is preventing people in Canada from being persuaded by advertising and promotion to use tobacco. And she says the purpose of the mandatory package warning is to discourage people who see the package from using tobacco. These are important objectives, but if you remember, as you mentioned earlier, they don't apply, this advertising ban doesn't apply to foreign magazines. It applies to Canadian publications, but 65% of Canadian sold magazines are coming from outside of the country. She says that this, these goals of preventing people in Canada from being persuaded by advertising and promotion, she's, she doesn't stop it at the pressing and substantial objective part of the test, but she says that you need a properly proportioned limit of free expression to have this objective be sufficient. So she's, she's hinting here that, look, I'm not gonna say that preventing this type of advertising is not a pressing and substantial objective sufficient to get through that first stage, but I'm not going to go overboard and say that the objective is something grand like saving lives from cigarettes. I'm going to tie it fairly closely to what the statute actually does, and I'm going to say that we're going to make sure this is going to be a properly tailored limit if we're going to use this objective as a reason to infringe a charter right. She continues in the section one analysis and Finds generally the law does have a rational connection, but notes one specific prohibition on using logos on non-tobacco products is not even rationally connected to the objective. Leaving that aside, where the important lifting happens is in the minimal impairment analysis. And she says, look, here I'm going to point to the government's failure to lead evidence. There was no evidence as to why a less intrusive measure like a ban on advertising aimed at children or a ban on what's called lifestyle advertising. That's a distinction between informative advertising, saying here's a new tobacco product out that you might want to consider. That's just informative advertising versus lifestyle advertising where you present tobacco use in a way that makes it look appealing and tries to encourage people to smoke your brand, but indeed to, to smoke it all. So she says, you didn't give me any evidence as to why one of these less intrusive things would not be effective. Indeed, the evidence that I do see that was led suggested that such steps could be effective. They also notes there was a study done on these less intrusive means. The existence of the study was known to the court, but the government did not release this study to the courts. And that raises a, a problem that you'll see in your practice if the court knows there's some probative evidence that's in existence that you don't lead, they're going to assume the worst. They're going to draw an adverse inference against you. They're going to say, I assume you didn't leave that evidence because it hurts you. Furthermore, Justice McLaughlin's reasons have a, a robust defense of the protection that ought to be given to commercial speech, which counters the dissenting judgment that suggested that commercial speech is entitled to a very low degree of protection. 
ultimately, Chief Justice McLaughlin finds that the government has failed in its minimal impairment task. And so she strikes down as little of the law as she can in order to vindicate this charter difficulty, but strike down the law nevertheless she does. So this case I want you to think of as a very good articulation of some of the core Section 1 issues as seen through a freedom of expression lens. But I also want you to think about the question of evidence and how, when the government is going to seek to defend a law that restricts expression on the basis of Section 1, it will have an evidentiary burden. It will need to muster evidence sufficient to explain to the court that what it did was at least within a range of reasonable alternatives. If it doesn't do so, it can't simply say, well, Irwin Toy deference, range of alternatives, leave the balancing to us. You can sort of think of the RJR case as drawing a line and saying, look, we're going to defer to you. We're going to give you some room to negotiate, but help us out. Give us the studies that you base your decision on. Tell us with evidence why this falls within a range of outcomes. And if you get overly confident and you refuse to do so, you you can't count on the court necessarily simply rubber stamping your decision. So the final case that we have on expression is the Little Sisters case. And this is a interesting case because what we're dealing with here is law that was found to be constitutional, but was being applied in an unconstitutional way by the executive. So I'll explain what I mean. So Little Sisters is a bookstore in Vancouver, still exists as far as I know, uh, that caters to the LGBTQ community. And it imported 80 to 90% of its erotic books from the United States. And imports were being repeatedly delayed, confiscated, destroyed, damaged, prohibited, or misclassified by customs officials. And they were relying upon a provision of the customs tariff that prohibited the importation of materials deemed to be obscene under Section 163.8 of the Criminal Code. So under the Customs Act, you say, okay, if this would be obscene under the Criminal Code, I can prohibit the importation of the material. So no question, Little Sister is being targeted in particular. And so the court hears a constitutional challenge to the customs tariff as violating Section 2B. And the court says, we kind of have two problems here. The first problem is, does this statute properly interpreted violate the charter? But also, does the government action in applying the statute violate the charter? And the court decides, look, if we properly interpret this provision, it's constitutional. It's a prima facie infringement on expression to limit what material can be received, but it can survive a section one analysis. They apply a community standard of tolerance idea to what is obscene. And the court decides that this is a a test that if properly applied, a community standard of tolerance can be relating to to a harm, conduct that society formally recognizes as incompatible with its proper functioning. But the community that decides what's harmful, that community 
is consistent with the charter. It needs to be consistent with the charter, the court says. The community of people who get to participate in this decision as to what is obscene and outside the bounds of community tolerance, it's not an exclusively straight community. It's a community consistent with Section 15 that doesn't discriminate on sexual orientation or any other protected ground. So the idea is if you frame the community who gets to decide on the outside limits of the standards of tolerance broad enough, you can still have a ban on obscenity. It's going to be things that are harmful to the conduct that a society formally recognizes as compatible with its proper functioning. You know, things that are just outside the bounds of the community in a broad sense. Plainly, that standard was not being met by the customs officers in this case. They were targeting people because of their membership in a protected group. But what the court says is, yeah, we'll grant a declaration that these customs officials are out of line in their application of the law, but we're not going to strike the law down. And the important principle here to take away is that the misapplication of a law by the executive will not mean that the law itself will be found unconstitutional. Rather, you may have a constitutional law that's applied in an unconstitutional manner. So that's the last case on Section 2B. We'll be moving on to Section 7 in the next podcast. The main things you want to take away from Section 2B are you want to know the test, know the Irwin-Toy test. You want to know those values underlying Section 2B. You want to know that generally it's really easy to show an infringement of Section 2B, that there's activity that conveys or attempts to convey meaning in a nonviolent way, and that there's government action with the purpose or effect of limiting expression. You want to understand what is meant by a content-neutral time, place, and manner restriction, and you want to understand how when you're looking at whether something has the effect of limiting expression, you're tying back into those purposes underlying expression. So you want to know that you're often going to be in section one in an expression case, and that there's going to be this deference to the choice of the legislature at the minimal impairment stage. But you want to take away from McDonald, that that RJR McDonald, that that deference is not without its limits, and that the courts are going to expect the government to try and to put forward evidence to justify why they're limiting expression. They won't be a rubber stamp in a section one analysis. You want to take away that the courts may choose to do a more limited remedy. They may say that part of a legislation, part of the legislation can be read down or struck out. And they may say that it would be unnecessary to strike down legislation merely because it's being applied in an overly zealous or discriminatory or otherwise improper way. If you have those basic ideas, you should be in good shape on expression. And we'll move on in the next podcast to talk about Section 7 of the Charter.